So good morning again, and again, it's great to be with you into your houses of abode, as well as here with the, the 10 who are present and assisting in this worship. I want to, again, give a big shout out to those who are here, and I know that you all at home appreciate them and um, just the great work that they're doing and continue to do as I see them now doing some, some little adjustments, whatever that might be, so I uh, appreciate them a lot. You know, we're uh, returning now to a kind of uh, series. We've been, as you know, I've been sort of doing a, a COVID-19 series up through uh, the Easter uh, season, uh, but today I think it was wise to, we're going to move on. Uh, we're going to believe God on this COVID thing, and we're going to continue to speak into that issue, of course, as we need to speak into that issue, as per we persevere in faith, in a patient faith, as we've talked about. But today we're back in Matthew, and particularly chapter 5, and this incredibly interesting passage of Scripture that really is quite countercultural, even if you mean by culture, counter the evangelical, the modern, not the classical, but the modern evangelical culture. What do I mean by that? Well, see, about the Old Testament law, the word I even say, the moment I even say the word law, we always sort of repulse. Immediately, don't you, if you hear the airwaves, think of law as contrasted with gospel? About the Old Testament law, however, our confession, it even the confession of every classical confession I know of, describes the law of God as, and in these words, perfect. Hmm. Perfect, this law. As in flawless, unspoiled, and especially in the old English use of perfect, a complete and whole sort of thing. Comprehensive and timeless. A timeless expression of God's will in character. So what do we mean exactly by law? Well, here in this passage, we'll see that Christ's use of it, no less than Paul's use of it, is clearly all of it. All of the five, the Pentateuch we described, all of the, the writings that were inspired by Moses, all of it is perfect. All of the prophets, even beginning with the Davidic kingdom and on, all of that corpus that predicated upon those five Pentateuch covenantal aspects of the law, how they then execute that law, the prophets being covenant executors themselves. Even their prophecies were always based on the teachings of the law. You could describe the word law as almost synonymous then to old covenant, the word covenant. In Christ's use of it then, no less than Paul's, it clearly is at all, and to be sure, we discern in it there's a moral aspect to that law, teachings about what it means to live in a manner that images, images the morality of God. That's our purpose in life, to image him. And the law becomes the most perfect representation of who God is. What does he think? Who is he morally? Of course, there's a ceremonial aspect of that law, teaching about how one is to worship God, and particularly in that worship of God, how one discovers God as our Redeemer through this incredible and ceremonially rich kind of worship focused on sacrifice. All of worship focusing on the need for a sacrifice. And of course, there's a civil aspect of the law. In the Old Testament particularly, 
Israel was at once a nation and also a church. It was a theocracy. And yet, as was implied in creation mandate itself to be fruitful and multiply, we discern how this, coupled with Abrahamic clarification, where all of the nations were to be included into this rich and powerful promise of the covenant to Abraham that we could be saved by grace through faith alone. All of the nations it's envisioned. It didn't say that all the nations would become Israel. It says all the nations maintaining their ethnicity, maintaining their genealogies, maintaining their geopolitical natures. But all of these nations somehow would be included into this incredible salvific presence of God mediated through the temple as on the basis of the covenantal moral code. That's a lot. More and more today, though, are questioning this. Now, often it's in the context of this fear about the rise of post-Christendom. And few would disagree that we are now living in an effectually post-Christian world, especially those of us in New England that are probably at least a generation or two ahead of, of many other areas of the country even. Secularism is on the rise. Church attendance is in decline. Hostility to Christian values is ever increasing. In light of this foreboding landscape, it's appropriate to ask, as many have, is the church on the right track? And have we missed something? Typically, on the one hand, it might be said, yes, the church became legalistic and moralistic, and immediately we see that as the church lost the gospel, and I believe that's true in many instances of Christendom. It's one of the primary characteristics, you might add. But here's the the clincher. Often that is then associated with the law being flawed. Somehow the church has depended too much on the Old Testament, I'm not going to mention this person's name, but, but this person's an extraordinarily popular, uh, populist sort of preacher, and he wrote a recent book, and, and here's the way he says it. What's wrong with modern Christianity is that it relies too much on the Old Testament. The problem with the modern church is our incessant habit of reaching back into the old covenant concepts, teachings, sayings, and narratives. He offers then this clear call to the post-Christian church. Would you consider unhitching your teachings of what it means to follow Jesus from all things, old covenant? He says this is necessary because when it comes to stumbling blocks to the faith, the Old Testament is right up there at the top of the list, quote, unquote. Well, you can see where this is going. There's a kind of rhetorical shock to these statements if you understand them historically. He says it even this way, the Ten Commandments have no authority over you, none. He's continuing. This is his quote. To be clear, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. Paul never leverages the Old Covenant as a basis for Christian behavior. So listen, I know everyone listening is smart. And I know that you're capable of distinguishing certain things that need to be distinguished. And so I'm going to try to simplify what could be one of the most important and yet sometimes complex passages in all of the New Testament. 
I know that you can handle it. You may need to think, but it really is quite simple in the end. I hope you'll bear with it as we come now to the Word of God, asking Him to truly clarify and speak into us how we as Christians can embrace, yes, the law, the old covenant law is perfect. Even if, and only if, we understand and see Christ in it. That's where we're going. Let's pray. Father, be with these people and us and me and all of us in this room. Father, we so desperately need the the moral clarity of your law today. We so desperately need to be humbled by that moral clarity that we might be drawn to the the moral satisfaction of Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would do such a thing today, that you would enable us to all the more wonder the beauty and the loveliness and the perfectness of the law as we see it, Lord, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I have just pretty much prayed this sermon. If you listen to the prayer, you know what we will say. It's sad again that many who would be teachers of God's word have honestly not understood how to use the Old Testament. Evidently, this was a problem even in Christ's day. It's a problem that he pointed out particularly in the, in the Pharisees. Even as Paul would continue that critique and say there, in his words, there are many who desire to be teachers of the law, speaking of those who are self-appointed and unskilled and trained and, and rightly dividing, in his words, the, the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. And he goes on to say, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And then he critiques them. And Paul says, for we know that the law is good. I'm quoting in 1 Timothy 1.8. If one uses it rightly. That brings us to our text. Jesus here in our text tells us, you have heard it said, you have heard that it was said in those of ancient times, dot, 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 but I say to you. In other words, the whole passage is framed in this context of, of how Jesus comes into the scene and his first statement of the purpose of his ministry is stated in verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then later in verse 22, he sets up these six antitheses, these six compare and contrast statements about how some are misusing the law, those who are called particularly the Pharisees. And again, the whole context of this you have heard it said, but I tell you, what you've heard is not right in so many words. So what is contrasted here? You could read that phrase in one of two ways. You could read it in grammatically to those of ancient times. That is, to those who have written about God's law in years past. He would be referring to the traditions. The traditions of the the scribes and the Pharisees, those who had a vast, voluminous tradition of interpreting and commenting and like commentaries today or, or, even, or even sort of these anecdotes that would come from it. 
Some are called the Talmudim and some are called the Mishrash, but maybe he's referring to that or maybe he's referring to God's law itself. You could read that phrase to those of ancient times or by those of ancient times, referencing God's law itself is passed down from the ancient of days. The Old Testament word, which is it? Either grammatically could be possible, but then that's where the context helps us. In the passage right after this, he will reference an example as the, into the issue of murder. The second half of the sentence is not in the Old Testament and thus could not be properly attributed to God in his word. He says, you shall not murder. That is in the Old Testament. The second part, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment, is not in the Old Testament. And notice the effect. The effect of this addition is to prevent any possibility of grace and forgiveness. You see, the second observation is the verses before suggest that Jesus is contrasting the righteousness of the Pharisees with the righteousness of God's word. Their righteousness is not equated with the righteousness of God's word. And so it is not the law which Christ here contrasts, but to the interpretive and prescriptive small-minded traditions of the scribes and Pharisees, understanding of what satisfies the law which is being contrasted. I've come not to annul or abolish, but to fulfill the law. And he means by that the law, the word of God that we have in the Old Covenant. As we will see, this is a crucial, crucial statement. Christ here is viewed as complementary to the law of God. Before we get there, let me just point out three things here. First of all, I want to look at how Christ understood the law under salvation himself. Second, we're going to look at the Pharisees' false use of the law unto salvation by contrast. And third, we're going to see how Christ clarifies then the right use of the law unto salvation. These three things, here we go. Number one, how Christ understood the law unto salvation. Now, as for how he understood it, let's just be clear. He sees the law as essential to salvation. He sees the law as essential to salvation. How else can you read verse 18? But truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota and not a dot will pass away from the law until it's all accomplished. Iota and dot, this of course is a grammatical metaphor, referencing the Greek and Hebrew language. The iota is the ninth letter of the Greek alphabet, and it's the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet, corresponding to also the yod and, yod and the Hebrew alphabet. This dot is referencing what we call a seraph, or a, it's a part, it's a stroke, it's a short mark, it's a short line that is part of a single letter in the alphabet. Are you getting the point yet? You could just as well say, in other words, not one small letter or even one part of a letter shall pass away from the law of God until everything is accomplished in order for us to be saved. Get your mind around that. Wow. <laughs> we better start reading our Old Testament, don't, don't you think? As we do every week, of course. Now, in case you didn't get the metaphor, he goes on. Therefore, 
Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Look, it's just going to be really, really hard to twist this statement into saying anything less than if you are not perfect according to the law, then you are screwed. That's what he says. It's really that simple. It's not simple because it just flies in the face of, of our little spirituality in the way that it's kind of been conceived of sometimes. But it's just that simple. It's not intelligently difficult. It might be bothersome, though, to us. And if I stopped here to be sure, it would be to me as well. So hang on. But let's contrast what we just heard as Jesus' view of the law with the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees used the law unto salvation very, very differently, and Christ's point will be wrongly. Here's the clue as to what they did. Verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what's going on here? Was it that the Pharisees believed that we could have salvation and blessing without perfect obedience to the law? Or was it that the Pharisees believed, as Jesus did, that we couldn't have salvation with blessings without perfect obedience to the law, but in their self-reliance and pride found ways to reduce the law to an imperfect, not perfect or complete law relative to the true and perfect law as then sometimes they could possibly obey it perfectly. Let me say that very quickly and simply. Is it that the Pharisees had too big a view of the law? Or was it that they had too small a view of the law? Jesus tells us it's the latter. They were reducing the law. They were rationalizing the law. They were minimizing the law through their traditions. And why would they do this? Well, it makes total sense, lest you get too high-minded about these Pharisees, to be honest. We all have a little Pharisee in us, I suspect. What did they do? Well, it starts with this notion of self-reliance, doesn't it? I'm going to depend on myself. I, I don't like to be wrong. I don't like to be morally broken. I don't want to be that way. And so we begin to feel this urge to defend ourselves, to prove ourselves to others and to myself and even to God. And, and in proving ourselves, we begin to either blame shift and we find some false sense of security that, oh, we're a little better than them. And what do we do to do that? Well, of course, we're going to be very selective about which laws we do well, maybe more prone to our natural aptitudes, for instance, or upbringing or something, compared to those people who don't do what I focus on that I do, well, it's related to the wall. That's just another way of being a moralist. Someone who, in their self-reliance upon the law, and they're keeping it for themselves in order to have salvation, will then find all sorts of dot, jots and tittles, iotas or, or, or seraphs, if you will, will find all sorts of ways to take it out of its context, to reduce it into its context, and all of a sudden, it's the kind of thing that we feel a little bit better about. 
We can keep it. Look, before you get too critical and judgmental here on the Pharisees, I will venture to say there's a Pharisee in every one of us who would prefer to see the law reduced, minimized, rationalized, compromised to something less than its complete and holistic beauty. And to do that, we are caving into our pride, our moral self-reliance as revealed. And so with that, notice what Christ does next. Again, for the next whole rest of this chapter and the next chapter, there's going to be this series of six, count them, six, you have heard it said, but I tell you, statements. And in every one of these six, you have heard it said, but I tell you, statements. Christ exposes the way in which the Pharisees had relaxed the law, how they had reduced the law, how they had minimized the law compared to what the law in its perfect beauty really said and required in terms of our obedience. That is, the standards of law are not, are expanded by Christ in comparison to what the Pharisees did. Is that not what you were thinking about Pharisees? We always hear it, and it's a very low view of the law that says it. The Pharisees had a too high a view of the law. Wrong. They had a miserably low view of the law, and every time Christ ever convicts them of it, he helps them see that. And it's all in service to that statement in verse 17, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. For the law is good. The law is perfect. Just a quick illustration to show you how this is going to work. We'll take that first one. We read only the first one today in the scripture, and you, it was the one about murder. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, and then it goes on, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be judged, liable to judgment, i.e. that self-righteousness thing. But I say to you, listen to what he says, everyone who is angry will be judged. Whoever insults, now you can just pile into that. Insults, you know, slander, gossip, anything that's, that's not truth-telling, false witness, Anything that is, even if it's truth, is truth for the sake of murdering another's reputation and another's, in other words, a truth that might be true but stated in a wrong context or in a wrong way or with a wrong motive. I mean, I don't listen to the TV, particularly the world news, might I add, where a 30 seconds, maybe, doesn't pass before I've heard a violation. Thou shalt not murder if we understand murder in that perfect and comprehensive of way. And I see it in my heart all the time. Little ways, little judgments, little ways, little judgments. Whether it's angry, bitterness, insults, gossip, you name it. You see, Paul explains about this later. In Romans 7, for we know that the law is spiritual. Not just outward, but inward, in other words. And I am in the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. See, Paul understood the perfectness of the law. 
and it condemned him. Exodus 9 helps us understand why there's such a harsh reality or curse to those who would violate the law of God. And this is just one instance, mind you. Because every law of God, if we understood it rightly, is a reflection of the glory of God and the beauty of his nature and character. If a law stated negatively, the positive is assumed, you see. If the law states something outwardly, the inward is assumed, and vice versa. You violate God's image as image bearers, and that gets to the heart of it. That's why we read the preface of the Old Covenant. It often, often to, uh, in this day and age is, is forgotten before we get to the Ten Commandments themselves, which, as we'll see, are merely title pages for all the volumes of explanation that comes under it, both in Exodus and particularly in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. You see, the law is perfect. It's beautiful. As Exodus 9 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, Let my people go so that they may worship me. Basically, what Jesus is saying here is if we are rightly related to God, we will refrain not merely from murder, but every iota of morality that is related to murder. From malicious thoughts, words, deeds that are unloving, you name it. That is, in every one of the six, you have heard it said, but I will tell you there is an illustration how the Pharisees, by their interpretive tradition, had reduced the law to something much less perfect and maybe, humanly speaking, much more possible to support their self-reliance and pride. Thy law is perfect. It is holistic. It is comprehensive. It is spiritual. It is the revelation of God's glory and holiness. And it's for this reason that Christ then makes it clear how to transgress even one iota of the law, one dot of the law, is liable, and he says, you fool, it is liable to the hell of fire. For your very purpose of creation was to image, glorify God. The law is the manifestation of God's glory. And when we violate it, we defy our very purpose for existence. It's an original sin, you see. The Pharisees' misuse of the law was not that they didn't believe this. It was that they, in their pride, reduced the law to sustain their pride. But Paul says it well when the Pharisees and unbelieving Israel had it wrong. In Romans 10, he says this, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, speaking of a tradition in Israel, as you'll see, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, that is, by their own works, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end, verse 4, the telos, the purpose of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes in Christ. You can read that later, Romans 10.3. It really is a perfect, biblical, scripturated commentary on what's going on in Matthew 10. That leads us to the third point that I want to make. So how does Christ understand the law unto salvation? 
This is where I hope you listen carefully, even if it might take a little energy. First of all, clearly again, Christ's expectation concerning the law is that the law is perfect, one, such that perfect obedience is an essential element of the gospel. You're not saved, except that you perfectly image God by obeying and not transgressing the law of God. Again, let me read it to you again. It's just unbelievable in our context to hear a pastor say that, I think. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota and not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. But, hold on, don't leave, I promise. Secondly, either the law is perfectly fulfilled by us, which was the very sin and unrighteous act of the Pharisees, the crisis against here, or it is fulfilled in a lawfully, that is by the law itself, appointed substitute. This covenant contract that we had read like a bunch of stipulations. Thou shalt do this, thou shalt do this, thou shalt do this. You got to pay your bills on time. If you don't pay your bills on time, you, you will violate your contract and you'll be kicked out of your rental property in three months. It's that kind of a contract. But then at the end of that contract, it has a clause. The clause that was revealed through the temple service of worship explicitly. But there can be a substitute. If only you cry out mercy. There can be a substitute. You can let your old, you know, ex pay the bill if you don't have it and I'll take it. That's what he says. You see, that's what's going on here. Paul himself makes reference to this. He says, look, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, who is great in the kingdom of heaven? This almost certainly refers back to a great prophetic tradition of the greater prophet than Moses. I might, if I have time in the sermon, I'll be watching the clock closely, but I have put it in the sermon to show you at least many of the ways where the whole purpose of Matthew's gospel is to present Christ as the second Moses, the greater Moses, the greater prophet. And when he says this, as in the context of Matthew, he's speaking to that which we now know as the Messiah, God with us, prophet. You see, if the Pharisees and their self-reliance Reduce the law in order to keep it. Christ directs us to a way wherein the law remains glorious and perfect and whole and complete. Even as we are saved by a great one in the kingdom of heaven who keeps it for us, all legal, all legal, according to the law itself. Thus we come to this way that God, or Christ introduces the mission again. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. There it is. The theme of fulfillment, the theme of Matthew's gospel in relation to Christ and the law. It's nowhere more perfectly illustrated as well in the gospel of Luke. Perhaps you'll remember in Luke 24, there's a scene where they're travelers after the resurrection, before Christ's ascension, where these travelers are on the Emmaus Road and they're wondering and they're talking about what they've heard about in this great event that took place in Jerusalem and Jesus appears to them and they were grappling with what had happened. 
And I'll just get to the end, Luke 24, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, all the scriptures, all, 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 to that populist preacher. I just want you to tell me what all means, except all. What might Christ have pointed out? Well, maybe the traditional way of thinking about that would be, it's true, to point out to all the ways in which prophecies, both by Moses and prophets, anticipated the coming of Christ and how he was revealed when he came. To be sure, we can, of course, immediately recognize that Jesus is the son of David who will sit on the eternal throne. He is the promised offspring of Abraham who will bless the nations, Genesis 12. He is the prophet greater than Moses who will speak the words of God, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 through 19. And again, Matthew's gospel is meticulously structured, depicting how it is that Moses, as described in Deuteronomy 18, is Jesus of Nazareth the Christ. There, Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, first, greatest, from your brothers. It is to him that you will listen. And again, I just won't take the time. You look at the prophets. He talks about Moses and the prophets. Moses focusing on the Pentateuch, the first five books of, of the scripture. The prophets continuing in the tradition of David, but specifically in the prophets as well. He takes the entirety of the Old New Testament in that statement, Moses and the prophets. Moses being often synonymous with law and the prophets. He says it twice in verse 7, and then later in verse, I think it's 13, uses the synonymous parallel there of law. Moses and prophets is really law and prophets, law of prophets. And so you could go to the prophets, and you'd hear in Micah how he is to be born in Bethlehem. You'd hear in Isaiah how he is going to be born of a virgin, and he would be called Emmanuel. You hear in Isaiah 9 about David's throne and all of his similarities to David and his lineage from David itself. That's one way we could look at what it meant that Jesus to the travelers on the Emmaus Road said that Jesus who was crucified is in fact the Messiah, the greatest one of the kingdom of God, who satisfies or fulfills the law. But my guess is, he probably, if he did that, clearly would have done what Jesus here is going to be doing. I suspect Christ led the Emmaus travels to himself with a fulfillment motif as related to the gospel. That way, in a way to teach our passage today is the great one who perfected a perfect law. First, he would have pointed out how it was that this one that was crucified lived in his obedience to the law and curse as perfected in Christ, he fulfilled them both. Remember what was said in the beginning. By law, Christ means the whole of the Old Testament covenant. Again, by prophets, everything after the Pentateuch, generalized. And therefore, for Christ to perfect the law, the perfect law, he needed to fulfill all aspects of that law. Now, if you look at the Old Testament and the prophets, you would, or the law and the prophets, you would see generally that this covenantal law can be divided into these three major categories. They're very significant as they'll be picked up in the New Testament as well. They're moral, they're ceremonial, and they're civil. 
Let me take them briefly, all three, and you show you how Christ fulfilled each one of them. Let's talk about the moral, the moral aspect or categorical aspect of the law. Christ fulfilled the law, how? Well, by keeping it. Every iota and dot, by keeping it. That is to say, Christ fulfilled the law without once, even once, sinning, and not just sinning outwardly, but inwardly and spiritually and perfectly and holistically, the way we've described it. Romans 10.5, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that is keeping the law, but the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Jesus did it. He lived by the law. Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, 1 Corinthians 5, 21. On it goes. The first thing Christ did is he lived. He just lived a human's life. We call it the incarnation. And in living that human's life, he perfectly perfected the law of God. Thus Christ fulfilled the law by perfect obedience to the law. Born under the law, we're told in Galatians, on our behalf, so that he might keep the law perfectly. But that then leads to the second aspect of the law. Christ also satisfied the curse that was owed to you and me for not keeping the law. It's a double love gift. He does what we needed to do for us, but we had been living under the curse of this covenant contract now for a long time. It's called all the curses of, of, of all the curses of sin. We're suffering that kind of a curse now. It's outward and it's inward. And so where do we see him satisfying that? Well, particularly in the ceremonial law. Christ, you see, if you know anything about the temple, it all focused on the Holy of Holies. And what happened on the Holy of Holies? It was the mercy seat, the place where sacrifices were made to atone for, which is to substitute for our curse under the law. It was a very bloody scene. There was a great stench when you walked into the temple as a sacrifice was being made. There was smoke of burning flesh. There was stench. And there was a horrible cursefulness that was there put on what was described as the testament, the, the, the tabernacle there that was there, and, and this incredible ark. And on top of this ark where the scroll of the law was to be kept was a mercy seat with horns on it and blood dripping down over the, the incredible tabernacle there. It was an incredible picture how the curse of the law was being satisfied by what was sitting on top of its if it's, if, it's, if it's covering there, a sacrificed animal. Christ satisfied the very essence of the temple, wherein God was in the midst of them, saving them by means of a sacrificial system where curse was substituted upon a sacrifice. The author of Hebrews tells us this, that under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. These ceremonial laws were temporal in the Old Testament. Yes, but their meaning and their essence was spiritual, to be sure. So we don't go and sacrifice anymore in a temple. We don't come here and you don't have here on this table of mercy, you don't have here this bull with blood falling over. You have Jesus Christ remembered. 
So yes, there's an outward sense of the ceremonial that is now no longer needed. It was a foreshadowing. It was a type in a visual sort of tutor way that led us to Jesus Christ. But the law was satisfied perfectly. That is the covenant of that law. And therefore, through the Old Testament sacrifices covered sin, they were only temporary. Hebrews says it this way, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from a dead works to serve the living God? And so in Hebrews 9, he entered once and for all into that holy place that I've been telling you about. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of, our own, of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. You would not know a thing about the cross if you did not know the Old Testament. You would know nothing about what happened. It would look like just some martyr dying a bad death who was into himself. But in the context of the law that is so perfect and beautiful, to see how that very law, both with its moral clarity was such as to, at the very least, condemn us of our sin, but with its ceremonial efficacy, revealed to us this grace that is so extraordinary that it didn't require that the law get reduced and unperfected. I make up words too much, don't I? But it's about the way in which Christ satisfies, fulfills that law, even the curse of the law, not just the obedience of it. The life of the flesh is in the blood, said Leviticus, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for your life. Leviticus 17:11 could just as well be New Testament book chapter 17:11 with Christ on it. This is why Jesus became the mediator of a new covenant. Not new in the sense that it annulled the old law, new in the sense that it fulfilled the old law. It accomplished it. Since death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant, says Hebrews verse 9. And finally, there's this civil. This civil code. Now, you're thinking, okay, that's going to be an interesting one. You see, Jesus fulfilled Israel's purpose. Do you know what Israel, the word, means? Son of God. Sons of God. Back to Jacob. Jesus, Israel, was meant to be the very Son of God in the midst of the world. Its purpose was not to annul the Abrahamic covenant, Paul will argue in Galatians. It was to continue it. That is, a covenant that meant for all nations to be invited by this incredible glorious depiction of the gospel through the various rites and rituals and covenants of Israel so that the nations would be converted to God. Now, when Christ came, he satisfied, he fulfilled Israel's purpose to be a light in the midst of a darkness-filled world. Jesus fulfilled Israel's purpose as a nation to embody the temple presence of God. And with the coming of Christ, the purpose of Israel as a nation ceased, even as Israel, the church, 
continued in, with, and through the New Covenant Church today. Now you're going, whoa, pastor, you just blew my brain. I was hanging with you, but I don't see that. Well, let me just read you a short little passage. Romans 9. For not all who are descended from Israel now belong to Israel. End quote. What's he talking about? Right before that, he had described all the ways in which Israel had been given this incredible honor. How Israel had been given all the covenants as a guardian of these covenants. Israel had been given all the temple and all of its rites of worship, its liturgies of worship. Israel had been given this very unique, special place in a geopolitical world, political world where it could be a nation who would be guarding that temple and the very gospel itself based upon the clarity of God's moral law. And Israel failed, much like the Pharisees had failed. And so Paul explains in his commentary the meaning of Jesus' fulfillment. Not all Israel today is Israel. Not the Israel that is of the remnant tradition within Israel that leads you to Jesus Christ. That's why in John 18, Jesus answers and explains when he was going to Jerusalem in the context where, where the apostles were thinking and many people were still thinking that he was coming to build a kingdom with their sword. They were ready to go to fight. They were ready to see the tabernacle of God paraded into Rome at this time who controlled them and Here's what Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants, speaking of the disciples, would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But that's not my kingdom. My kingdom is not from this world. My kingdom is not to build another geopolitical state. My kingdom is to satisfy the purpose of Israel, to protect the temple, sacrifice, and the word of God. And so let me close. In all three aspects of the law, Christ is shown to be our Savior. Not by annulling or abrogating the law and the prophets, but by filling them on our behalf. And without the Old Testament, we haven't a clue what Christ accomplished for our salvation. And without the Old Testament, even as the New Testament will not reduce the law, but expand it, you see it in the epistles as well, we find that we can become righteous only if we will repent of our self-reliance or our self-righteousness. Michael Kruger said it well. You just can't read even the church fathers and not only read, studied, and used, and see how they not only read, studied, and used the Old Testament in worship, but they insisted that Christ was their main subject when they did. The Old Testament was valuable because Christ was there. Our take-home very clearly is this. Today, Christian, the law should lead us to greater moral clarity, not less. We are instructed by the law how then we should live out of vocation to image of God. And if there's anything our world needs right now, brothers and sisters, I would argue we need the law of God again. But being careful to interpret it correctly Rightly dividing the old to the new. To see it in its fullness for moral clarity's sake. But only can we do that if we are no longer afraid of it. And we will no longer be afraid of it if you see, secondly, this law would bring us to moral humility rather than 
self-defiance. If the first purpose of the law is moral clarity, the second purpose is humility, to make us humble, not self-righteous. You see, in Christ, we were restored to the law because we're no longer afraid of it. We can read it, and it'll go, ouch, 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 ouch. No one will be righteous after reading it. No one, not one, says Paul. But we are not afraid to be humble and admit our unrighteousness now. Because the third use of the law is to bring us to moral redemption in faith, or by faith in Christ. Let me explain this very briefly. Isn't it true that we often judge and condemn those among us who have the moral clarity to see sin clearly in a holistic way, even if partially? Doesn't it make sense why they crucified him? Because we just don't like people who are really good. That seems terrible, but it's true. For those who are self-reliant before God and others, it makes us very uncomfortable, if not downright indignant, to feel or sense from any source that we don't measure up. We are much happier reducing moral clarity to that level that is generally practiced such that we can, by comparison of someone else, feel just a little worse about ourselves. It is so ugly what we do in self-reliance. We crucify him, even if he is living and breathing through someone who for a moment is morally clear. Moral humility then wants to expose that and our moral impetus. Paul says, what shall we say? The law is sin? He goes, no way. Yet if it had been for the law, I would not know my sin. Now that's a man that's been saved. That's a man that's been saved. A man that says, I am so glad for the law because it taught me my sin. Because it's not until you sin that you can therefore be warned and therefore be half saved. Who will deliver me from this body of death, said Paul after that confession I just read. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Moral redemption. Moral redemption. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction. We are justified. We are made righteous by someone who satisfies that for us. The word propitiation in Romans 8, I mean 3. And then moral clarity, finally. We now want to study the law. We read it, especially as it's been further exposed in the New Testament in Christ and then through the apostles. We see just how deep and full and complete and perfect this law is, and it will be the rest of our life that aspires to more and more becoming like Christ by obeying the law of God. I hope and pray that you have been led to Christ this day, to this table as we come to it now. We celebrate not ourselves as righteous, do we? We celebrate not that we were a perfect sacrifice acceptable to God. We celebrate not that we could then have the eternal fortitude to sustain eternal hell, the very ultimate curse of of our sin. And we celebrate one who could, the greatest of the kingdom of God. Let us prepare our hearts to worship him and to love him and to embrace him and to give our lives to him wherever you may be.